I am so excited about introducing you to Jeremy Lent. Jeremy has written several books that provided me with a more comprehensive, integrative view of our world. And particularly in his book, The Web of Meaning, he addressed ex existential questions that we all work to understand. For example, who am I? What am I? How should I live? What is the purpose of our life and where are we headed now? And what is the importance of understanding our worldview? Jeremy's passionate embrace of his deep interconnectedness with and support of all life with compassion and love for all life is truly inspirational. While he never loses sight of the pain and suffering in the world, Jeremy offers ways for us to work collaboratively to create a better future by following a life-affirming path that gives our lives more connection with and meaning, love, and compassion for all life. Jeremy is an author and speaker whose work investigates the underlying causes of our civilization's existential crisis and explores pathways towards a life-affirming future. His award-winning book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, examines the ways humans have made meaning from the cosmos, from hunter-gatherer times to the present day. His recently published book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe, offers a coherent and intellectually solid foundation for a worldview based on connectedness that could lead humanity to a more resilient, regenerative, and flourishing future. Jeremy is founder of the nonprofit Lyology Institute and writes topical articles exploring deeper patterns of political and cultural development at Patterns of Meeting. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that it stimulates your thinking about the, your meaning of life as well. So let's get started. Welcome, Jeremy. I'm just so excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, so, so great to be here, Larry, and I'm really looking forward to having it too with you. So thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, as you know, I've read both of your books, taken your Web of Meaning course, and joined you in the Deep Transformation Network to continue working with you and others to develop a path to an eco-civilization, as you call it, and I think other people do as well. Uh, I think that qualifies me as a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. <laughs> So it's with great pleasure that I have the opportunity to introduce you to more people in our Salish Sea bioregion. So to get started, Jeremy, can you just tell me your story? Uh, what were the major events in your life to do the work that you're doing today? Yeah, sure. Thanks for that for that question, Larry. And in fact, um, really the first half of my life, I had no idea that I would find myself later on doing this kind of work and writing these kind of books. Um, I actually, uh, the, the kind of arc of the first part of my life was actually through 
business. Um, I got an MBA um, and uh, actually uh, took an internet company public. I actually started a company and took it public during that first dot-com boom. Um, and um, then I went through like actually a whole uh, a sort of a whole bunch of things collapsing around me that caused a really like a, a crucible, if you will, in my own life and things to kind of melt down. And what happened was my wife at the time, she passed away some years back, but and she got quite uh, sick. And I left the company that I'd founded and taken public to look after her, but I left the company too early. It was that first dot-com boom time, like 1999. Company collapsed within a year or two. Meanwhile, my um, wife I was looking after her, and she was alive for a number of years after that, but she had some cognitive decline. So it's like I lost the person I was most close with. So I really felt like everything I'd built in my life had crashed, but I wanted the next, whatever I chose for my life going forward to be truly meaningful. And that was where I began my own sort of search for what that actually means. And it's, I had no idea what it was going to take me on, but it took years of um, my life, like exploring where these ideas that we take for granted come from, whether it's ideas about soul or God or humans separate from nature, all these things, um, and ended up really creating from that this kind of um, path that led to these books I wrote. One, The Patterning Instinct, which I wrote a few years back, which is a history more than anything of different ways in which cultures have made meaning from the universe. And then moving to the um, this more recent book, The Web of Meaning. As you went into this whole search, you delved into the fields of uh, neuroscience, history, anthropology, got into various religious traditions, primarily Buddhism and Taoism and Neo-Confucianism and indigenous wisdom. Uh, and, and when you pulled all of these together, I, I love the description that you, you had that, uh, that you really see yourself as an integrator and, mm -hmm. uh, and really an integrative cultural uh, study of life. Could you speak a little bit more uh, about uh, what you learned in that process? For sure. And really, integration is one of the key things that I did learn in terms of the value of that, the, the way that that really becomes part of a truly full, uh, fully lived life and a full sense of meaning. And um, so a lot of what I began to discover is these in our dominant culture, we are told to sort of keep things separate. And we have little boxes for things like there's maybe the work I do and maybe my personal life. There's like my mind and my body or there's human separate from nature or science is separate from spirituality. And those that's like almost sacrosanct. Definitely don't mix those two. And what I discovered is that those are really false distinctions and that actually a true um, a life really that becomes truly meaningful is one that actually integrates all those different parts. And integration is key because it's not just a matter of just mashing it all together, like sort of mashing potatoes or whatever, but integration is this notion of how things can be unified, but still maintaining their um, distinctions. And so it's like integration is something where you celebrate all the diversity of the different ways of whatever it might be, different ways of making sense of the world or different aspects of your life or a whole a society. But, um, but they're also part of a coherent whole. And it turns out that's actually a core 
element in how every living entity actually emerges in the world is through this process of integration. Um, and so that's actually a key theme throughout my, uh, especially throughout the web of meaning. Great. Wonderful. In the web of meaning, you asked some very important questions. Could you quickly go through those questions and why are they significant to you? <laughs> right. Sure. Well, actually, the book is structured according to really some of those kind of the existential questions that pretty much every human being asks at some point in their life, even though we might not uh, ask it quite as crisply or clearly as those questions go. But um, they're things like, who am I? You know, basically, what's my source of identity? Like, where am I? What kind of cosmos do I live in? What am I? You know, um, what kind of entity is my, I, what am I versus like other types of creatures or whatever? And then it goes to other deeper questions like, how should I live? Um, and ultimately, why am I? What's the purpose of mm -hmm. our lives? And then, and then, um, it kind of moves, the book finalized, sort of finishes by going into where are we going as a global society? Um, where are we heading? And how can the answers to those first questions affect that outcome? So those are the various basic things I, I delved into and happy to just touch on um, how we sort of deconstruct some of those answers to some of those ones, if there's any uh, it might be a bit exhaustive, <laughs> exhausting to look at all of them, but um, maybe there's one or two that we can look at if you'd like. That little... Well, you just you just go ahead, Jeremy. I'll let sure. you roll with that one. Yeah, sure. Well, <laughs> maybe um, maybe a, a good one to look at is this thing of who am I? Just it's a good way to sort of start out because one of the things that we are led to believe from our dominant worldview uh, is that I, what I am is actually um, just this kind of part of me, sort of in the, the sort of front of my brain, if you will, like um, some sort of sense of a mind um, or a soul as the older traditions of Christianity or whatever had it. And this kind of notion comes from Descartes, ultimately. You know, he has made the most famous statement in Western philosophy, cogito ergo sum, or I think, therefore I am. And if you think about what that actually is saying, basically in saying the only source of my true identity is that thinking capacity. And that's actually how thinking has unfolded the last few hundred years. That, um, that If that is the case, then um, even when we consider that we have a body, it's like we go like, oh, my mind exists in a body. So it's like, I'm, I'm that sort of thinking capacity and I exist in a body. So, you know, if I'm enlightened, maybe I should take care of my body, but it still seems like something separate from me. And what about other animals who don't think the way we do? Well, Descartes and other people said, well, they actually don't even have a full existence. They're really just machines that just do their stuff without thinking like automatons. And those ideas became part of our dominant worldview. Um, but this not, doesn't have to be like that. So in the book, what I do is oftentimes I'll explore different non-Western traditions. Uh, for example, in Taoism, there's this uh, recognition that actually that conceptual way of thinking like Descartes talked about was a particular form that they call yue or purposive thinking or purposive action. And then there's wu wei, which is just kind of a more effortless and being sort of sharing the same kind of way of relating to the world that other animals have. And the, what's fascinating is these traditions from the past 
show actually what neuroscience is now telling us. That it turns out that thinking capacity that Descartes thought as our only existence is one important, but just one aspect of our overall cognitive capacity, which has this kind of animate way of being, just like the Taoists thought about, but that we share with all of nature. So that's just an example of how we can look at a dominant worldview idea and show that it's actually been shown to be wrong by modern science, and that actually what we do find was intuited far more deeply by other cultures. Well, I'm I'm glad you've mentioned the the concept worldview a number of times, and you've uh, you've uh, uh, talked around some of the aspects of our current worldview. Uh, first of all, what's the importance of a worldview in how? civilization and society moves forward? Yeah, that's a that's a key question because a worldview is something that most of us don't really think about too much. And in fact, really that's part of the power of a worldview is the very fact that we don't think about it. Essentially like a worldview is a lot like a lens through which we see the world. And just like, you know, we look at the world through our eye, which is a lens, um, which actually changes the the actual vision quite significantly from what's out there. But we don't realize that because we just see that through our eye all the time. So we don't even realize that's a lens. A worldview is similar because from when we're just beginning to learn language in our culture all the way to when we grow up, when we become teenagers and then um, grown-ups, we just make sense of the world the way in which our culture tells us this is how the world works. And it doesn't mean that somebody sits us down when we're a little kid and says, let me tell you, like, here's how the world works. First there's this, then there's that. But we just imbibe it and we implicitly make sense of it in that way. And that's why a worldview is so powerful. It tells us that this is how things work. This is how you do things. This is why value, what values are based on. And without realizing there are other ways of seeing the world, we're just totally dominated by that way of thinking. We might think we're being creative, but it's always within that structure of thought. But when we look and we realize that other cultures in history um, have viewed the world in a very different way, it opens our minds to other possibilities. And then we can begin to see things about our worldview um, that may be flawed or destructive. Um, or we can see positive things about our worldview too, but we get to see it from a different perspective. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think the challenge here is our current worldview, which has obviously gone global uh, around capitalism and uh, around uh, other factors. As you mentioned, how we see our the other, uh, how we view the other in life uh, has also, uh, aside from all the fabulous things that have been created, say, in the last 500 years, uh, look at all the, the the negative and toxic things that are uh, have been building up, uh, kicking the can down the road, so to speak, and uh, and look at the challenges. Not only the the great loss of life that we've experienced to date, the extinction of of species, uh, but uh, but where are we headed with it? Uh, what what is your uh, view of society's uh, uh, current worldview and where mm-hmm. it's leading us? Yes, well, I think our our current dominant worldview, and um, and this is what I explore in, in detail in this book, The Web of Meaning, and um, is both dangerous right now and and deeply flawed, and uh, those 
two elements of what is so crucial to get a better sense of. Like, but before you even start to go there and explore what I mean by that, it's important to, I, I just want to emphasize that we there is a lot, just like you mentioned, there's a lot to um, be grateful for, for the civilization that this dominant worldview has created. Um, there is there's just amazing advances that have come from science, basically, over the last few hundred years. Everything from just things like as simple as a germ theory of disease or um, a development of electrical grids and the ability for us to talk to each other from hundreds or thousands of miles away and, and other people to see that from around the world. So many things to be profoundly grateful for. So this is not just a kind of like, oh, there's something bad versus something good. But we need to realize that the same dominant worldview that's led to these benefits has led to these massive imbalances. And they're based on kind of flawed understandings of the cosmos which what's so fascinating is that most of us think, well, even if we don't like the dominant worldview, at least it's scientifically grounded. That's the whole thing about it. But it turns out that it's based on science for the most part from four or 500 years ago. And most of the presumptions of that worldview, such as that mind-body split that I was just talking about, have been shown to be incorrect. But that hasn't yet pervaded the dominant way of thinking, which is so deeply ingrained from these ideas from the past. And that's why uh, right now, this dominant worldview has led to the, fundamentally because of the sense of humans being separate from nature and the whole of the living earth being not something that has intrinsic value in itself, but something that's there to be exploited for human benefit. That's one of the fundamental assumptions in the dominant worldview, which has led now to this kind of growth-based system, which is totally unsustainable and could even lead to the utter collapse of our civilization before the century is out if we don't turn it around. So that's way in, in a way in which it's dangerous. But the way in which it's flawed is also just so fascinating to look at. It's not just this notion of mind versus nature is separate. The very idea of nature itself as being like a machine has been shown to be utterly wrong. And the idea that humans have some sort of essence that separates us from the rest of life has also been shown by evolutionary biology to be wrong. So when, for example, indigenous people around the world talk about the rest of living beings as our relatives and a dominant worldview person come across that the first time I kind of you know, give a smile and a knowing sniff and that, well, of course they're not. Um, and it turns out they are. What evolutionary biology shows us is that we are all related to even if entities and um, life forces that seem totally different from us, but we all share the same common ancestor and we share a deep part of our DNA um, with every other living being around us. Great. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, 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 and along those lines, where is this path leading us? Uh, where, where are we going to be in 10 years, 25 years, 50 years, if we don't, if we don't find another way to move forward uh, with, uh, with uh, uh, our, our, our lives? Well, if, I think if we keep going this way for um, too much longer, which and there's no current sign that we're turning it around, we have to recognize that by the middle of this century, uh, I, I think it's very likely that our civilization itself may be on the rocks and um, at existential threat of just coming apart of the scenes. And that is primarily because of this uh, un, 
fetid uh, destruction, consumption of the natural world that is going on right now. So that, I mean, just to, just to get a sense of some of the examples of what I'm talking about is like since 1970 alone, for example, we've um, animal populations have declined by more than two thirds, by about 68%. And that decline is continuing at a, an increasingly rapid pace. Um, at the moment, if we at the continued rate of the plastic production um, and the destruction of wildlife in the oceans, it's hard to even get your head around this notion, but um, there will actually be more plastic in the ocean than fish by the middle of the century if you just continue the these growth rates of these and the decline rates of these concepts. And basically, we're heading for the sixth extinction of species since life began on Earth. Um, because of human uh, activity. And all of these things are not just, um, oh, that's a shame, like, you know, uh, the world won't be as rich and abundant as it once was, but, you know, we'll get used to it. It's actually, we, uh, even though we're so removed from the sources of things like our food and our air <clears throat> and the basic things we take for granted, the reality is that we, our very essence, our very lived existence depends on the life support system of this planet Earth, and we're destroying our own life support system. So with a combination of global um, climate breakdown and masses of refugees measured in most likely in the tens and hundreds of millions of people, big uh, swaths of area and absolutely unlivable by the middle of the century because of heat, um, not to mention cities getting flooded from uh, rising water levels and, and incredible droughts and mass famines. And those are the kinds of core fundamental issues that are going to be leaving our civilization really at risk of just getting um, fragmented and destroyed, which would be the greatest cataclysm in all of human history. We're not just talking about, oh, well, we'll just start again um, a generation later. We're talking about just untold devastation that we need to do everything everything in our power as a global human society to turn around. But we just have not yet gotten that level of collective awareness. Yeah, I agree. And uh, uh, th th that, of course, then brings up the next question, which is, what are our choices? And uh, apparently, uh, I feel, and you certainly talk about this as well as others, that we need a more life-affirming worldview and way to transform to a healthy, more resilient, regenerative path uh, in communities throughout, uh, for example, our bioregion, which we're focused on. But everywhere in the world. Those choices, that choice exists. What is it going to take for people to begin to view the world differently? Yeah, that's such an important question. And, you know, something that people might hear when they're hearing first me talk about how close we are to this kind of devastation, and then this notion of, well, we need a different worldview. A very a uh, reasonable thing to come up in someone's mind is, well, we don't have time to change this worldview of the entire global civilization. I mean, we barely got time to just shift and invest more in renewables. Or, you know, like this is, this is a, a luxury that we can't even be thinking about right now. And my um, response to that kind of way of thinking is actually, this is something that we 
can't afford not to be thinking about. And, and to give a sense of what I mean um, by that, one, one, one way of thinking about it is like imagine our whole global system being a little, say like a um, some sort of complex software um, which is going more and more out of control and there's more and more bugs and you've got these software engineers running around trying to fix one bug and then the workaround creates an even bigger problem, which is essentially what we're doing in the world right now. We fix a problem, create an even bigger problem that rises 10, 20 years later from that. And somebody comes along and says, you know, we need to change the operating system. We've got a flawed operating system. That's why these bugs are so bad. And so all these frantic uh, software engineers no, we don't have time for that. We can, we barely have time to keep it going for ne next week. Don't even talk to us about changing the operating system. But that's what needs to be done. And with a different operating system, all those bugs suddenly become uh, can like vanish essentially, and you can start again from a different basis. That's the notion of shifting our worldview and trying to build a civilization that is life affirming rather than life destroying. That's based on that, which is based on maximizing the flourishing of humans on a regenerative earth rather than maximizing wealth exploitation and and um, basically. Uh, an extraction of the of life from Earth, so we have to do that change. And the point is, we have to do it at the same time as we're doing all the incremental stuff. I'm not saying ignore a shift to renewables or ignore uh, policy changes that can make this better or um, like stop fossil fuel companies. Uh, subsidies and all these things that have to be done right away. But in addition to that, it's more that we have to do it from a different perspective. The once we all, and in a way, this shift in um, worldview is profound. And it's also the easiest thing to do because each of us basically simply can come to our own way of realizing that we've been conditioned in ways that don't make sense. And through our own work, and our own um, curiosity and, and openness to other perspectives, we can shift. It doesn't mean we have to like suddenly change everything we're doing, but it means we can do something and what we are doing from a different perspective and from a different orientation and look into how it can connect with other life-affirming projects going on around the world. So this profoundest shift that is required is also something that can happen in, um, in a moment once we're primed and ready for it. Well, that's that's a that's a, an interesting point. So, uh, how do people? Uh, and I agree with you. The worldview shift, uh, for example, to a more um, uh, a, a more uh, complete three hundred and sixty degree view of what's going on and why, and and having all that background is important. Uh, but let's assume that this message does reach people, and let's assume because there's a uh, a time factor here, as we've heard, we've we've heard in eight years, if we don't make these changes, the consequences are going to be irreversible. We know already, even if we make tremendous strides, there's so much baked in already, the, the, the losses are going to continue. 
But let's assume that this message reaches and changes the hearts and minds of people within the next five years. Do you feel that there is enough time and enough potential uh, uh, opportunity for humanity to really get it and move forward? How many people do we need around the world engaged? Because it's also a collaborative process. We can't, we're working on our bioregion, but hopefully other bioregions are moving in the same direction. Uh, what if it takes five years for us to get a critical mass of people involved in this movement? Yes, I, I hear where you're going on this. Um, from my own perspective, I think that I sort of try to avoid um, spending too much time focusing on the sort of am I optimistic about the probabilities or pessimistic about the probabilities? I mean, to be frank, I'm more pessimistic than optimistic in the sense that if I have to like make prognosis and I see the destruction that seems to be going on unabated, the incredible dominance of corporations of and the move towards right-wing populism around the world and all these things, um, they, it's very easy to get demoralized. Um, and at the same time, uh, what I feel is most important to do is to really look clearly. Like I try to avoid what I see as false optimism. And there's a lot of stuff like that going on in articles that get published by even people as who I respect tremendously, like Bill McKibben or whatever, um, which which look at uh, the the up you know this great invest um, the great opportunity now from renewables and the costs coming down and these things that can be done, and I applaud that and I want to move towards that possibility, but without looking at the real deep analysis, the recognition that our growth based economy is leading to destruction and even a wholesale investment in renewables around the world will only lead to more consumption using renewables until we change the underlying form of the system. We have to look clearly at that. But just as much as we have to look clearly at that, we also have to look at this possibility that these changes can happen. So my approach is to not be too attached to is this going to work or is that going to work? But this recognition that and as what life is calling from all of us right now is to just give ourselves actually into this process. None of us can actually predict what will happen because of the fact that our system, our whole global system is multiply nonlinear. Um, which means that it's not just one nonlinear system like say, cultural shift, but there's the, our economic system and um, the relationship with the earth weather systems and ecosystems. All these things are nonlinear, which means that there's changes we can't predict. Uh, Greta Thunberg, who's like suddenly um, gets tens or hundreds of millions of people following her in this message of change that we need, that can't be predicted. We don't know who that next person will be uh, um, a few years from now or whatever. But that's why what we need to do is what we can do, regardless of our sense as to how what the probable success is of this or that, but knowing that that is what life is calling on us right now. You've talked about this. Other people have talked about this. The importance of, in approaching this, on a bioregional basis yes. might be a way for people to come together uh, in closer proximity, have more in common and so forth and so on. But can you speak to why uh, taking a bioregional approach 
uh, in many bioregions around the country, like our bioregion. Why do you think that's an important way of, of, of getting the movement we need? Yeah, I, I do think it's critically important. And one primary reason is when we look at our lives and our society from this different perspective of this actual deep human connectivity with non-human nature and embeddedness within life itself, then recognizing that we exist in bioregions is one of the foundational standpoints for how we can organize our society. Because if we're organizing with the living earth around us, rather than just imposing our control over the living earth and simply setting fences around things, then it, it becomes more natural to actually organize our own community and society around the regions that life itself has developed, around a watershed or around a particular arid region or fertile region or wherever it is that we find ourselves as part of the, the total community of humans interrelated with non-human nature. And when we look at the our social and political organization right now, then we can get to realize that these nation states that we have and the um, state organizations of big uh, countries, things like that, they make no more sense than the rest of this dominant worldview. They're simply lines that were created by uh, geopolitical forces or by um, uh, as a result of a war here or there, which side happened to be more powerful uh, in a particular time period or whatever. And those lines actually have no coherence relative to the human lived experience with the earth. So if we want to reimagine our future society in a way that can truly be more sustainable, the bioregion would actually be the natural organiz organizing function of that. Um, and, and that's in itself would be almost like a mid-level within the kind of holarchy or like nested fractal mm. structure of how organization can work. Because it really begins with um, your direct um, family and people that you're very close with, like your clan or whatever, the people that you're around every day. Um, and that expands out to, you know, your shared group of community that you know directly that expands out to the broader community, which can expand out to the, uh, the whole area where you live, the region, which might then go to a bioregion. And then bioregions might, um, there are issues that they want to share with other bioregions. There's no sense that everything has to be limited to that place. But basically, the ultimately, I think the principle of subsidiarity is key here, which is like that you push the decision-making power down to the level mm. at which it is felt the most, the decisions are felt the most and where people are most able to make the right call. And many of those things mean getting pushed down even below the bioregion to the very local community. And some of the things like a global climate breakdown or controlling transnational corporations has to be at a global level, can't be handled at a bioregion. But many of the ways in which we organize around our own lived experience with the living earth would naturally be at the bioregion level. Exactly right. And I couldn't agree with you more that it starts not only in the community and not only in the family, uh, but also with each individual making right. that leap. It starts, it's, it, it, it starts with that type of self-awareness. Um, so, so let's assume that enough people in a bioregion really um, now have a desire. There's the will to do it. 
what's the way? This is the question that you and I have come back to. How do we basically get onto that path? How do a critical uh, mass of people in a community, in a bioregion, in, uh, you know, in the nations of the world globally going all the way up, as you said, fractals all the way up, how do we get people engaged in the movement? If they have the will, what's the way? Yeah. Well, um, I think in many ways, you're probably better <laughs> able to answer that in your experience than um, me in terms of so many of the, the great things that you've been and are putting in place right now. Um, but I think in general, what is important is to really keep remembering that um, Buckminster Fuller statement of that if you if you don't like the the kind of the whole social system rather than trying to uh, change it directly build something better from within and let people get attracted to it and so I do think a lot uh, and what I understand a lot of the work that you and your team are doing is to basically focus on what's possible to look at your local um, experiences and mm-hmm. here's some of those core permaculture principles are so important. Um, Things like about observing. And so that there is no one way to do something right, but it's that deep connection with your region is to observe, is to really be attuned with it, um, is to look at really everything that's done, being done from the point of view of that expanded identity, from just being an individual self to being part of a community, and maybe even more important, part of a commons, Mm-hmm. which is an interesting concept because it's a very old concept and yet it's a very new concept in the way it's being re-understood in the modern world. And, you know, oftentimes when I first came across this notion of commons, I was thinking, oh, there's some sort of medieval thing about like you put your sheep on some pasture. That doesn't apply to our day-to-day lived experience today. But it turns out the the commons is not just something you share, like um a watershed or a river or something. A commons is actually a form of organizing, a form of identity of being a human with other people and working inter- interactively with shared resources that are not just resources to exploit, but actually a part of your own actual community itself. And so um, looking at things from that commons perspective gets to be crucial because then if you've got some idea and you're saying, oh, we should start up some approach to uh, a project which can ultimately move into some sort of business, whatever, rather than making it a for-profit business mm-hmm. and going like, oh, okay, I, you know, it's reasonable. I want to do well by doing good and make money as I'm doing this. Look at a ways in which you can organize it as a commons, ways in which you can share um, the benefits with other people around you. And so as you're building something, you're building it for everyone and not just being part of this, this capitalist system that leads, um, that leads inevitably to making compromises and undermining those great ideas to begin with if you're not careful about it. So those are some of the principles I'd say are essential in building this different kind of model that that can attract people towards it. And one thing I would just add too is, um, I was talking before about the the principle of integration, that notion of unity with differentiation in a system and how that leads to true healthy systems. So similarly, while it's incredibly important to be focused on your own bioregion and your own community, and that's the core, there's also very important to establish 
meaningful connections with people in other bioregions um, and and share with them your best practices, learn from them other practices. And if they're very different, like a very different kind of bioregion, very different kind of culture, then be open to what you can learn from those differences. So that when we get to build, um, it's called in systems thinking, it's called small world property of complex systems, where there's lots of connections within a small one narrow part of the network, and then a few um, connections uh, connected to very different other parts of the network. That's what a healthy system looks like. And that's what's important to build in our own reorientation of a life-affirming culture. Boy, just so well stated. And I think you've used the term shared a couple of times, shared identity, shared resources. I think where we're getting to is when you bring people together in, in a local uh, bioregional area, and of course, expanding out to the whole world, because it, it's like, I think in one of your, your points, it's, it's a two-way street. There's a, if a community or an individual is a node and there's a hub like the bioregion, there's tr tremendous amounts of communication and transference of in, in, uh, actionable information, intelligence that flows between the parts and also the parts in the whole and, and the whole out to the parts. And that, of course, extends when you create a network of bioregions. So figuring out how to create a model that works and can be replicated, at least the process in other areas, understanding that every place is different, it seems to be the way to go. So how do we... Uh, educate more people, and this comes back to worldview, to make that change so that we can create that life-affirming path forward. Uh, do, we, do we need to look at a, um, for lack of a better term, a, a political process or a social process for people to come together and go through this process of deliberation once they have a shared purpose to figure out how they want to go. And as you said, really empower people in their local communities and up to get involved in this. How would you go about doing that? Yeah, uh, you're certainly asking the, the tough <laughs> questions there and, and the right ones. So I'm so, so glad we're looking at these. And of course, you know, just to be clear, um, some of these are ones that, to which there's no one simple answer. And I'm certainly not claiming that I've got the answer or whatever, but I have perspectives to share. And I think the one thing we need to recognize is as part of this kind of uh, global dominant um, system uh, is not just a matter of these transnational corporations owning the um, the fundamental financial system and the economics and the means of production, everything. They also own the media. So we might have the best ideas, but those ideas don't get transmitted. And the ideas that get transmitted are the ideas that sell advertising, basically, um, and, uh, and the ones that buttress the dominant worldview that people find not too intimidating or not difficult to get their heads around or whatever. And so that's where your question gets to be even more critical. And we need this change, this shift in consciousness, but the means of actual transmitting ideas to um, people and, and a mass scale are owned by these same destructive sources of profit. So I think that what we have to do 
is recognize that it's a little bit like thinking if you say you're in a uh, walking in a forest and you see stuff around you, you see the trees and you see the birds flying around. What you don't see is those tree roots down below the earth are all connected with each other through this mycorrhizal fungal network, right? Um, so they're actually transmitting information to each other, even transmitting resources underground. So it's like this hidden network that in some ways is even more powerful than all the stuff that you're seeing above ground. Similarly, we ourselves, those of us working towards this life-affirming future, have our own mycorrhizal network, which is which can be manifested in the very things that is happening right now, this conversation and those people who are listening to this conversation, then transmitting it themselves. And they may not make the headlines, but it's an incredibly powerful network. And it's not just a network of ideas and like conversation, but it's this almost like a deep um, below conscious level network of the ways in which we show up in the world, the ways in which we like relate to each other with compassion and openness and curiosity. And so each of us has a part to play. None of, there's not like one solution where we go, okay, um, somebody needs to come along and uh, um, put a certain color dye into this whole mycorrhizal network or something. <laughs> no, it's much more about each of us needs to recognize that we're part of that network, which is, empowering because we realize, you know, it's not like none of us are going to change this world system by ourselves, but each of us can actually be part of some force, which is so much greater than any of us. But to do that, and this is a crucial shift in orientation. Uh, I believe that we have to consciously shift our attention, not just to what we are doing that feels so important and life-affirming and right, and we want other, other people to know that this is what we're doing, but to look at how we can support and reinforce what others are doing around us. Because a network only develops its power. And there's this thing called Metcalfe's law, which is um, recognizing that the power of a network is actually a function um, of a, a square of its connections. Well, what that means is if you triple the connections, you don't just have three times as much power to the network, but nine times as much power. Like everything ex exponentially expands. But that only happens when those connections amplify the signal rather than deaden the signal when that connection happens, which means that each of us, every one of our conversations is one of those nodes in that ultimate massive um, system. And when we're having those interactions, we I think it's important for us to think, it's like once my identity gets to, gets to expand, that it's not just about me, but it's about my community and this all this life-affirming shift, then it's natural to say, oh, how can I help what this other person is doing? And, and then you begin to get as much of a sense of meaning and achievement when you see somebody else achieving something that you had a part in seeing in making that happen as when your own achievement is seen. That's when the network begins to actually powerfully offer this ability to real true transformation. Oh, I love where you're going with this. So in other words, uh, it, 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 what you're really saying is that while we have all been taught that competition is critical in our life and this is what you've got to do and you got to get out of this job and this person to the right and left in you is it may not one of the three of you is only going to make it you know and that's <laughs> right. going to be and you get into the competition Thanks of it so. all uh you know collaboration throughout all life is really how the 
how these whole systems actually operate, uh, it, whole systems operating in collaboration within your body, within a forest, within uh, all aspects of life. Uh, so can you speak to the importance of collaboration and what it can gain? And um, and uh, speak about that first, your thoughts about the, the idea of why collaboration is so powerful and so and can create so much positive good energy if we're all moving in the same direction. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad you raised this issue. Um, and it comes back to that discussion we were having early on in this conversation about how our dominant worldview is not just dangerous, but flawed. And one of the things that we take for granted, exactly as you said, is, well, it's cooperate, competition is what really drives everything. And in fact, we're told that because of the selfish gene theory of evolution, actually life itself evolved through competition. And then uh, we then say, well, competition is clearly what makes humans uh, so successful. We outcompeted um, other species. And then even within human beings, we understand competition is what makes the market work. And it's why, why all the benefits of our modern life happen, because we live in this um, marketplace-based society. So it's, it's absolutely pounded in us. And to the point that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, because then we become part of this competitive lifestyle. And we see that you know, we outcompete something, we, we gain a, a, some temporary uh, prize from that. We believe that reinforces that. So it's true. Turns out all that is wrong. Actually, uh, what, um, when evolutionary biologists look at life itself, what they now recognize is that there's only been a few big shifts in the complexity of life since it began on Earth uh, nearly 4 billion years ago, like to um, complex cells and multicellular organisms and mammals and uh, the world which we know it now. Every one of those shifts came about not through uh, organisms learning to be more competitive, but the exact opposite, learning to collaborate with other organisms. So one entity that specialized in one particular um, skill, then got to collaborate with another that specialized in something else. And together they created a positive sum game. So in fact, um, there's a secret life discovered is called mutually beneficial symbiosis of organisms learning to work together for the benefit of each other. So everyone benefits more than when they were separate. That's actually the source of the great um, shift in life's complexity. And it's just as true for human beings. What actually differentiates us from other primates is not that we outcompeted um, each other, but the opposite. We, when a few million years ago, our hominid ancestors found themselves um, in the savannah, it was a dangerous new environment. What they learned is that those groups that collaborated better were more successful. So we actually developed human instincts for collaboration, human instincts to about things like fairness and respecting people who are generous and, uh, and actually being willing to put our, our own selves on the line uh, to make something right out of a sense of what's right for the group. All those ideas, all those feelings are part of our evolved human existence. And that's for 95 plus percent of, of human history, we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers who developed a sense of values based on that kind of shared human instinct. And if occasional um, sort of big dude got sort of too big for his britches and had some of that sort of 
um, sort of primate, uh, sort of alpha male type drive that got too strong in him, the whole community would work together to keep that person from getting out of control in that sense. So they developed um, really complex social technologies to minimize the risk of something like that. That's what we can organize around today. Those are the same shared human instincts that we have within us. And that ability, that focus on collaboration enables us, is really a fundamental element to this idea of an ecological civilization. One that's actually built on life-affirming principles rather than the principles that have caused so much destruction. Yeah, well, I I agree completely with that, and I, I wanted to go back before we go to some uh, more or less rapid fire questions for you, uh, and it's something that I've struggled with. Uh, I would say since the eighties, uh, I I was in business as well as you, and I I I worked to see in media, as a matter of fact, I worked to see how we could bring people together around these same issues. And I had this belief for many years, and 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 uh, actually, uh, I would say I still do, although it's it's waning. And that is that capitalism could be changed into socially responsible capitalism through B, B corporations and so forth and so on. While also in the economic sphere, you have uh, cooperatives. You have employee stock ownership uh, uh, programs and businesses, and we know lots of those around where the people who are in the business really have control of the business and have some ethical or moral uh, values that determine how they do business. Um, I'm, I'm really beginning to lose a little faith in that belief uh, but I'm not sure what replaces it. Our economic system, the dominant system is so powerful and it does flow into the social. Yeah, yeah. No, this is this is profoundly important. Um, and it's a complex question. I think I mean, a, a simple way to approach it uh, or like more like the more the most fundamental way to approach it is to just look at capitalism itself what it's actually, what capitalism actually means. And basically, it's no surprise that capitalism first emerged at the same time and place as um, this worldview of domination of nature and exploitation and extraction of resources, because basically capitalism is the economic system of that worldview. It's one that with a limited liability corporation, um, it basically says, and we're going to give the economic upside to those people who exploit the most, but limit their downside. That was the basic uh, part of the of the sort of corporation. And, and then in more recent times, in the last 100 or 150 years, um, it's become an, entrenched in law that a shareholder company, uh, that especially one that is public, um, actually has to maximize shareholder returns and growth in shareholder returns above anything else other than otherwise the board of directors and CEO can get sued. I mean, it's like they have to do that. And that's part of capitalism. It's not just a, that it just happened that way, but that is the very system is to exploit and extract as much as possible to see the living earth, not as something that has dignity of its own, but as a resource to see other human beings, not as part of a shared collaborative, 
but as basically other resources to exploit and to take advantage of their labor or to exploit their mines, to push consumer goods on them, et cetera. So because of that, I do think that the idea of a social, socially responsible capitalism is truly an oxymoron. Mm. That capitalism is desired, is designed to be socially destructive, to extract profit out of people's communal um, desires and everything like that. Facebook is a perfect example of that. It seems like this wonderful connector of billions of people around the world, but it's designed not to help people connect, but to suck value from those connections, from those eyeballs. So I do think we have to recognize that. Having said that, I don't think that it's harmful for things like the uh, um, triple bottom line or B corporations to um, show what can be done when companies voluntarily make those choices and actually shift their charter um, to be to look for a triple bottom line. And the reason I think that's valuable in itself is not going to change anything because 99% plus of the transnational corporations aren't going to do that. And even one that did. Um, if, if some enlightened board that actually chose to become benefit, uh, a beneficial corp, um, they would then lose out to all the other ones that had um, no morals. And so if there's some copper mine that could be bought and um, maximized and cause masses of pollution, and some companies prepared to do that and make tons of money out of the copper, another company says, well, no, we're not going to do that because we have a triple bottom line and, and that would be bad. They'll lose out. And in the end, they, they won't be able to compete in this doggy dog system of market capitalism. But the reason I think the triple bottom line, things like that are so important, they give models for what can then be expanded to our entire society. So one of the things that I'm a proponent of, for example, is um, to make it that these large transnational corporations are only allowed to have a charter if it is a triple bottom line charter. And that, that would be up for renewal every few years. And if they didn't meet that triple bottom line, they would be closed down, just like declaring bankruptcy um, and the, the shares given out to their employees and those other stakeholders. And, and that, that would be it for those original shareholders. So one little shift like that, which could be done pretty much overnight if there was political will to do it, mm. could transform the very basis. Um, and that, then it's no longer capitalism. And we actually, it's, you can still have markets, you can still have corporations, but they're in, then they're existing in a system which is not actually capitalism because it's not based fundamentally on exploitation and extraction, but based on a balancing of an integrated way of, of living in embedded in a bigger system. Boy, I, I feel like we are just barely scratching the surface and we're coming to an end, but man, I'd love to get back into this one. Uh, in, in any case, here's some rapid fire questions, which in many cases you've already answered to a degree, but I just, I just am interested in your, your quick off the, off the cuff response. What, what are you most passionate about when it comes to your life? Really? It's about being, as really serving life, uh, it's really for me being my own personal journey of discovery is at some point to realize that actually that's what my life is here for. I've essentially given myself to the service of life. And basically each day I ask 
you know, what is it that can I can do that can truly be to the greatest benefit of all life, which, you know, involves looking at uh, living my own life to the fullness, involves looking at my skills, what it is that I can do to uh, really be part of this great transformation. So that's what makes me passionate. And I feel anyone, when they get to that place, would share that same passion because it's it's so it, it is you don't have to look for it it's there within us that that life is a very it's who we are i so agree with that it, that certainly is what gives my life meaning right now and uh and it it really is uh it, you really get you you uh you you come to some ease once you know and realize that it's really yeah. a, a wonderful feeling what's the most valuable lesson or lessons you've learned in your life mm. wow that's uh uh, great question to ask. Thank you. Um, well, I think maybe the most valuable lesson I've learned in my life is the importance of including everything in this kind of embrace of, uh, of total connectedness. That when we look at this, what it means to recognize this sort of deep interconnectedness, when we look within ourselves, there's part of ourselves that every one of us feels, oh, that's like a bad part that needs to be fixed or overcome or, or whatever. And to me, what was a fundamental shift was when I realized that actually I don't have to think in those separate ways, even of those parts within myself, but I can embrace everything within myself with compassion and love. And coming from that approach, I can then take those same that same orientation, embrace that to others, to all other people around me, to all of life around me. Um, and so really coming from that place of like an unconditional love um, is such a powerful way to approach things. And that doesn't mean unconditional niceness. It doesn't mean when some uh, fascist group is marching down the street and saying slogans of hate or whatever that I meant to just all say that's okay. But it's meant, it means that when I relate to those things, I recognize that even those people themselves are actually, they have something soft and caring within them that they've had to, they've had to push down and almost destroy within themselves to, uh, because of the way in which they have been conditioned. And so turning to even those people and those forces with love, but with this powerful recognition that we need to all connect at a deeper layer. Um, I think that's the, the probably the most significant thing I've learned. Wonderful. Um, so you've talked about all the joy of being an integrator and an integrative thinker and doer. What's the most difficult part of that role? <laughs> uh, uh, thanks. I love these um, deep personal questions. And I think maybe the most difficult part of that role is when sort of following on from what I was um, saying earlier, that when you get to this place of really fully embracing every part of yourself, then you kind of notice that um, each day you're maybe not living up to that intention you set. And then you find yourself, oh, re I'm rejecting this or, or whatever. And then the uh, 
what is both most difficult, but then it becomes this incredibly um, powerful response is to then turn to that moment and realize you can embrace that too. So it's that kind of shifting essentially to, there's a, like the, an infinite layer of kindness. Each time we discover that we failed ourselves, we didn't meet up to our own criteria of what we say, you can then turn to that with a new layer of kindness. So, um, so it's kind of difficult in the sense that it's always there as a challenge, but then it sort of takes what is difficult and then turns it into the most easeful uh, possibility, if, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, it does. I just love these questions, too, because I start thinking about uh, the other aspect. I, I would imagine that because of all the work you've done on yourself and the work you're doing in the world and how you feel about it, that you... Uh, sleep like a peaceful baby. But is there anything that keeps you up at night? Well, I think um, what keeps me up at night and what is really, uh, what's always there, this source of incredible disturbance is just this horrible path of destruction that I see our society on and that I see the uh, world undergoing and the deep, deep suffering um, of our shared uh, um, I said brotherhood and sisterhood of human beings, the deep suffering from the wars taking place like we see right now, this horrendous um, set of atrocities in Ukraine, but also the deep suffering from the incredible inequities that our society has, um, has created and the deep suffering of all of life. And the sense once, once that sense of identity expands to include all life, you can't get away from this deeply felt sense every day that I am life and I'm being destroyed by the civilization and it hurts. And yes. so that in itself, um, no matter how much we, I, and I, as I do talk about not being attached to outcomes and just giving yourself to what is good, but it's, it's always there, this recognition of this devastation that's taking place and the vastness, the scope of it is kind of almost, it's like too much for any of us to hold in its fullness, but just even being aware of it out there is a, is a very difficult challenge. Yeah, it really is. I, 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 uh, I, I have felt this pain and carried this pain for close to 40 years mm. since I first became aware of this and, and started yes. doing my work in this area. And I, I think, though, at the same time, facing it and facing those fears and realizing them and bringing them to into close encounter, uh, it, it, it also the, the balance for me is to enjoy the beauty of all life around yes. me and my my relationships with people and so forth and so on. And and so while I never, never, ever lose sight of that pain. Uh, you know, it, 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 it helps balance me out to continue to go forward. I think that's what we have to do as Joanna Macy and others have said, you've got to find a way of refilling, uh, uh the, the energy and, and, and life. And it's through all of the love that you mentioned. Yeah. So what do you do to, uh, to ease these uh, concerns? How do you balance uh, your work and your passion uh, that keep you in balance? What are the things you do to keep you in balance with everything? Mm. Well, I'm personally very, very fortunate to um, you know, have a partner um, 
with whom we share like a deep love. And to me, that it has been uh, the most nutritious and the, um, you know, like a, a fundamental like source of energy and life, uh, uh, life-giving um, sort of warmth, if you will. So I'm personally very fortunate in that regard. And I actually, you know, I've been talking a lot about balance and I try to keep my life balanced um, in terms of, I try to keep practices up of um, mindfulness meditation and embodied um, practices like a Qigong uh, Chinese practice, like similar to Tai Chi is very important to me. Something I do every day um, really is a way of uh, harmonizing all the different energy flows within me walking in uh um, we, we, we call it nature, which I think is such a joke because we are nature, but walking um, actually in some of the more naturally undisturbed parts of, um, of the world around us, that's a beautiful way to um, you know, re-energize and feel um, more connected with, the, with all of life around us. So basically just trying to balance these things and recognizing above all um, this uh, concept that I call in my book, Fractal Flourishing, which is that the flourishing of one layer of our identity requires the flourishing of other layers, which means, in, on one sense, it means that as an individual, I'm not going to be fully healthy and happy unless I'm part of, of a society that's healthy and happy. But it works the other way, too, that if I want to contribute the most to life, I don't believe that it means sacrificing so much that I feel resentful or lost or tight or, um, you know, just uh, limited in my own scope. I think it means really living my life to the fullest that um, I, I can in a truly meaningful way, allowing me to then really take that good energy and offer that out into the world. So I don't believe that our own flourishing as a human being is actually um, in a zero-sum game with what's good for the rest of life, but quite the contrary. Yeah. Um, you, you brought up something that was really interesting about your love of going out into uh, what we call nature, right? So let's say, uh, and I'm very familiar with the San Francisco Bay bioregion. I lived down in Marin for years. Uh, where would you take somebody who has never been out to visit the San Francisco Bay bioregion? Where would you take them to give them some sense of what you love about that region? Oh, yeah. Well, um, basically, I would take them out to um, my, my, fa my favorite area is like um, past Point Reyes. For people who know the area, if you go, go past there, this beautiful peninsula uh, where there's this, this incredible so really um, almost completely undeveloped and um, beautiful hiking trails and beautiful beaches also there, um, where, where it meets the ocean. And there's this yeah. wonderful sense there that of, for me that I get of really connecting with the true spirit of this, of this region. Um, so that's just a personal favorite place of mine boy i agree with you the the beach out there is just fabulous on the other side of point Reyes. uh okay what do you hold sacred uh, i hold life sacred and um, and uh really and then recognizing that the universe itself 
is what sets the conditions for life to arise on this earth. Uh, I hold uh, the entire universe and every manifestation of it as sacred, as something to revere. So what this is all about, what I'm doing up here, is focusing on the question of what makes a resilient, regenerative, healthy bioregion. Yeah, well, I think that in many ways, the answer to that question is the same answer to the question of what defines like a real healthy uh, ecological civilization, really, because as we talked about, the bioregion is is a, a as a core part of that sort of organizing system, and so ultimately, I, it would come to these these issues. I think first and fundamentally is the core value <clears throat> is being um, to be life affirming for all the all organization and all decision making structures to be based on what is truly life affirming, and and to have the, the, the objective to, to be to set the conditions for full um, human flourishing on a regenerated earth where the whole of earth is regenerated in a way that it can, allow, it can be flourishing too. So then uh, the core principle of mutually beneficial symbiosis being the thing that then um, infuses both the decisions we make in relation to non-human nature around us and those that we take in relation to our social organization with others. And so, and just adding to that, you know, uh, basically where the organizational systems are one that encourage commons-based activities um, and where things, are, uh, where new projects, businesses are developed in cooperative forms rather than those capitalistic forms. Um, and one ultimately that is based on a culture of what Rian Eisler calls a partnership um, society rather than a domination society. So ones that recognize the destructive elements of these things deeply embedded in our culture like patriarchy and uh, racism, which shows up in so many different ways, both from the extreme and ugly to the much more subtle ways, but recognizing um, that all those different elements of hierarchical and exploitative systems are not necessary. They're what we learn from childhood onwards, but we can unlearn those and we can develop partnership societies where we're actually teaching new generations to actually uh, live their lives according to the basic principles of their true human nature. Well, Jeremy, it has been such a fantastic conversation. I've really, really enjoyed it. And, and uh, once again, always learned so much from you. Mm. Uh, is there any question that you wished I would have asked you? Is there anything <laughs> else as far as key takeaways that you want to leave our, our listeners with? Yeah, well, thanks. And um, really, just want to thank you, Larry, for actually an amazing set of profound and wide-ranging questions. I feel that we've covered so much. Um, but so I think, I don't think there's a particular question that uh, I, I would like you to have asked, but maybe just to leave everyone finishing this conversation, just on this recognition that we, we've been talking a lot about the future um, and you know whether we can feel positive or negative about it, and uh, and uh, how we have to engage with it. And I think just to recognize that 
to me, what is really meaningful is to realize that whatever happens in the future, it's not a spectator sport. We're actually all part of it. We can even think of the future itself as almost like this um, on this verb. Uh, we are all futuring together. It's like this collaborative exercise of us every every conversation we take parts in, every micro decision we make, every big decision we make, they're all parts of this systemic shift that is possible. So we're all basically creating the future and realizing that I think and going out into the world in that path is I think what life is calling from each of us and what I would urge everyone to um, explore what that means to them. Well, I'm certainly on board with you and uh, and uh, engaged in futuring with you, uh, not only in the Deep Transformation Network and all the good work you're doing, but I really want to integrate more of your thinking and, and uh, in what we're doing up here. I think you have uh, a great deal of wisdom to uh, share with the people, and maybe we can do some courses or something of that nature. Whatever works out, I, I really want to develop a collaborative relationship with you as we deal with the question that we started when we uh, when we uh, joined the Deep, Colla Deep uh, Transformation Network, and that is how do we get there? What's how do we get over to that path? And I think that's what I am really focusing on. And and I know that's what the uh, focus of your third book is. That's so right. I, I hope that we can help to uh, uh, help uh, put some uh, uh, knowledge uh, into that uh, into that effort and, well, and work with yeah. our backs and minds and hearts. That is great. Thank you so much for 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 all that, Larry. And maybe just to um, leave. Uh, um, everybody uh, with uh, knowing the, the next step, they can take that uh, deep transformation network that you're talking about, just uh, to give context to people, is a network that actually um, I just uh, helped to sort of kick off at the beginning of 2022. It's just been around for a few months now. Mm -hmm. And it's a network really that invites anyone who feels the sense of this deep transformation that is needed in the world and wants to be part of it in one way or another to just join this online community of, at the moment, it's got nearly a thousand people from around the world and just be part of this own ongoing conversation about what is needed and uh, sharing a sense of um, shared vision with others from everywhere around. So you can find that, by the way, at www.deeptransformation.network. And, um, and you can just sign up and be part of it. Thank you again very much for joining with me today. We greatly appreciate your time. Been a great conversation. Take care. I hope you found Jeremy's view more enlightening and inspiring when we view our lives through a more life-affirming lens. I believe his perspective deepens our understanding and appreciation for our living world, giving us a better sense of who we are, what we are, and encourage all of us to think more deeply about the purpose of our lives. As Jeremy eloquently puts it, our core values need to be life-affirming and set the conditions for human flourishing in mutual beneficial symbiosis with all human and non-human life. We need to develop ways for us to create partnership societies. Jeremy makes the point that whatever happens in the future is not a spectator sport. We all have a stake in the future 
And it is our responsibility to get involved in whatever makes sense to each of us so that we can work for a better life for all. For more information, visit Jeremy's page on our website, navigatingourfuture.org. And along with a copy of this interview, a transcript, and more information about Jeremy's work, I think you will greatly appreciate his two most recent video presentations. Check out Jeremy's great two-part series describing what an ecological civilization is and how it works in practice. And if you appreciate our ongoing series, Navigating Our Future, please consider contributing to us on our subscriber donate page. Navigating Our Future is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so your contribution is tax deductible. Thank you for your support.